Matthew chapter 22, and I'm going to read verses 41 to 46. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us now walk before us as we, as we climb this mountain. Lord, if need be, hide us in the cleft of the rock and show us your glory. We long to see your glory. Holy Spirit, help us to understand what's been written and apply it to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. The person of Jesus Christ never seems to get as much attention as he does during the last month of the year. If you stop and think about it just for a few seconds, you might realize that it is rather odd that during these last five or six weeks of the year, Christians and non-Christians from around the world will sort of lift their collective voices to publicly celebrate one of, if not the most incomprehensible doctrines in the Scriptures, namely the incarnation of our Lord. Now, have you ever stopped to wonder why it is so popular? Why is it worth such emphasis and celebration and circumstance and parties and decorations and clearance sales and vacation days and bonus checks? Why is it worth all of this that Jesus of Nazareth was born? Now, do you think that the majority of the people who will celebrate His birth have any idea why it is important that He was born? I don't think so. Better yet, could you personally list two or three reasons why it is important or necessary that He was born? The fact that a baby is born, that's always stirring to the human heart. If you're around or you're, you're within the, the, the friendship of folks who have a baby, it's always exciting when a baby's born. That a baby is born into difficult circumstances is even more stirring to most people. But this happens literally every single day all around the world. Many children born in far worse circumstances than our Lord, and yet it goes practically unnoticed unless you're in the small uh, relation, relational community of those to whom the child is born. 
So the question again is, why is, what is so special about Jesus' birth? Is it that he was born according to ancient prophecies? Well, if that's the case, then we should probably celebrate John the Baptist's birth as well. Is it the fact that he was born into difficult circumstances? If that's the case, then we should celebrate Moses' birth as well. Is it the fact that he had to be laid in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn? Is it the fact that he would one day die on the cross? Is it the fact that he would die for sinners? Is that what's so special about his birth? I would suggest none of these are the reason why Jesus' birth is special. As a matter of fact, none of these are actually worth the gold-glittered lettering used to proclaim them apart from the single most important fact about the birth of Jesus, which is the very fact that he's trying to get across to the Pharisees in our passage today. See, the Pharisees of our Lord or of our Lord's day were under the same cloud of ignorance concerning the Christ as the lost and the blind in our own day who will gather all around the world to remember his birth. They had and still have no idea who he really is. Now he's withstood three different challenges from these religious leaders during this long day of ministry. It's about to... Uh, well, we, we've got a whole chapter still left in this day, but he's been ministering in the temple and receiving these, these approaches. And his turn has now come. And his turn comes, and he goes on the offensive, figuratively and literally, he becomes offensive. Starting here in verse 41 and going all the way through chapter 23... The Lord Jesus goes on an all-out verbal assault against those who had sought uh, to oppose Him. He is about to begin verbally filleting their souls open with the sharp two-edged sword coming out of His mouth to such an extent that when He is finished, all that will be left will, there, will be their rotting, blackened hearts laid bare for everyone to see. And he begins this, this entire diatribe with a theological question. Then from their very quick response, he, he turns the tables and reveals their doctrinal deficiencies and he, he does so in such a way that he, he stops their mouths for good. And that's why we read they don't ask him any more questions. They just, they, they've learned it seems to hush at least in his presence. So let's look first at this theological interrogation, beginning in verse 41. We'll go through the first part of verse 42. It says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, if we put together what we saw last week, and, and if we are honest with ourselves, we know that the pattern that we are watching here in this section of this chapter is very often our own tendency. Like the Pharisees, when we get the opportunity to set the agenda for religious discussion, we usually like and want to discuss the minutia of what we would call orthopraxy. 
We like digging into the popular, detailed debates about various issues within Christian living, coming to conclusions on these issues, vocalizing our latest achievements in these areas, and then taking our stand in opposition to other views tends to make us feel good. And so we like to talk about that kind of stuff. Christmas, homeschooling, the Sabbath, head coverings, birth control, the Pledge of Allegiance. It's not that these issues aren't important and aren't worth discussing. They are. The thing is, all of these issues are, are actually fruits that grow out from the roots of deeper doctrinal convictions. The Pharisees wanted to debate the most important commandment in the law. Well, the topic of God's law is extremely important. Our, our Lord doesn't, doesn't set aside the conversation. He answers... But while it is important, it's still secondary. It is a secondary application of a more important doctrine. Namely, what do you believe about God? God's law means nothing if you have a low view of God. If you have a high view of God, then you will believe that the law is important, you see. So in the passage before us, Christ is turning the tables. And rather than continuing to discuss these important but peripheral topics, he cuts straight to the heart of the matter. They want to talk about orthopraxy. He steers the conversation to orthodoxy. They want to talk about legality. He wants to talk about Christology. Now notice his boldness here. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, now, they would often travel in groups in order to antagonize him. He's not like them. He is not concerned with amassing a posse of retaliation. He doesn't get all of his buddies together. As a matter of fact, he takes them on as a group. He challenges and is willing to challenge their collective minds. He gives them the opportunity to use their combined knowledge and expertise. In other words, he doesn't speak and then wait for them to begin trickling away to dissolve the group down to one or a couple. He takes the opportunity while they are gathered together to examine their Christology. While they're gathered together. And then notice then his question, this theological question. It is a twofold question. It will eventually be rolled into another question, but it is very telling. He begins... Generally, we might say, what do you think about the Christ? Speaking to them in the plural, what do you all think about the Christ? You guys? Now this word think is important. It means to appear in one's mind, to, to suppose. I want to give you two other references to help us understand what he's asking them. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 6, Paul says this, And from those who seemed, that's our word, seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed, there it is again, influential, added nothing to me. Paul's saying, from what I could gather, 
from their outward deportment and their, their interactions with the people, these men seemed, I made the assumption, that they were important in the group. They seemed, that's the word here, for think. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 22 and 23, he uses it again. He says, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. There's our word again. And on those parts of the body that we think, that's the same word, that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. The idea here is that we make judgment calls based on what we've observed. We consider what we know about parts of the body, about the human anatomy, and we deem some parts weaker, some parts less honorable, some parts that need to be covered. You see, the idea behind this word is, is to form an opinion in the mind. Something happens or is brought into your mind and you, then your, your wheels begin to turn and you make determinations. You construct a mental image. You begin to categorize that thing in your mind. That particular thing now has a substantial existence of some sort in your mind. And so he asks them, what do you, you all, think about the Christ? The anointed one, the Messiah, the one upon whom God will set His seal and who will come from heaven and act as your leader and your ruler. In other words, when the topic of the Christ is brought up, guys, what kind of beliefs do you have about Him? What opinions have you formed in your mind concerning Him? What happens in your mind when you contemplate the Christ? How does He seem to you? Based on what you know, from what you can gather, what assumptions have you made about the Christ? Now notice he does not ask them, what do you say about the Christ? He asked his disciples that question, but he does not ask them, what do you say about the Christ? What comes out of your mouth when you talk about the Christ? He doesn't say, what does your confession of faith say about the Christ? He doesn't ask them, what do your books tell you to believe about Christ? Or what have your parents taught you about the Christ? He says, what do you think about the Christ? In your mind, where opinions and suppositions very often fire off, we would say pop into the mind without much external motivation or circumstance. They just, we say a word and our mind begins to create images. What happens when I say, the Christ? What comes into your mind? What do you think about the Christ? And this is the most important question that they have ever been asked. We know that they had a doctrine of the Messiah. The question is, what is that doctrine? That's what he's asking them. And this is also, for us, the most important question that will ever answer. This is the question upon which your eternity hinges. This is the question that I hope you ponder every time we get together. What do I think about the Christ? If Tozer is right that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, 
then it must be equally true, if not even more so, that what comes into our minds when we think about the Christ is the most eternally significant thing about us. So I would ask, church, what do you think about the Christ? The difference between biblical Christianity and every other sub-Christian sect or cult in the world is found in their answer to that question. What do you think about the Christ? Romanism says, well, the Christ does not have quite enough righteousness so that it alone is sufficient to save. So we need a treasury of merit. We need the treasury of the saints, the, the, or the, the merit of the saints, the merit of, of Mary. It's just not quite enough. Mormonism says that Christ is the brother of Lucifer. The Jehovah's Witnesses say that the Christ is the human form of Michael the archangel. The Campbellites would say Christ's righteousness is insufficient apart from water baptism. They probably wouldn't say that. They believe it. One is Pentecostals believe that the Christ was just a mode or a manifestation of God. And we could go on and on and on. It all comes back to this question. What do you think about the Christ? Every other religious question is secondary to this one. Every other field of theological study will either force you to answer this question or your answer to this question will be the wellspring of every other study. It will inform every other study. Every application of practical piety in your life is rooted in how you answer this question. See, Christianity is not primarily about the practical matters and lifestyle choices of every individual professor of Christ. No, no we make it about these things. Bible translations, denominations, political affi affiliations, home and family matters, the roles of men and women. Again, all of these things are very important, but they're not primary. Christ is first and foremost, or, or Christianity rather, is first and foremost a view of Christ. It is a doctrine of the Christ. We might say Christianity is Christology. It is the study of the Christ. Practical matters proceed forth from our doctrine of Christ. And if you can't trace the scarlet thread of your lifestyle choices and practices, your participation in or abstinence from this thing or that thing, if you can't trace all of that back some, to some sound, uh, correct, exegetical truth about the Christ, you may not call it Christian. You hear that word? Christian? It's got Christ in there. It's not Christian if you can't trace it back to, again, sound, exegetical truth about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now someone might object to that and say, well, that sounds good, but Christ didn't address every practical lifestyle matter in His earthly ministry. And I would answer that by saying, you have just vocalized a false doctrine of the Christ. The very false doctrine we will see of the Pharisees. And so as we proceed forward from here, I want you to be thinking on that question. What do you think about the Christ? When that word is spoken, the Christ, when that is used, what comes into your mind? Our Lord doesn't stop there. 
He actually moves in a little deeper to, to, to pinpoint their actual error. He asks in the second question, whose son is he? That is, where does he come from? What's his ancestry? From what bloodline does he derive his genetic code? Think about it. What would be your answer if I asked you, whose son is he? How would you respond? These are his questions for them. Christ has taken the conversation that they, they, they brought to him concerning issues of the law and he's funneled it down and he's traced the discussion all the way back to the very first and most important question. What is your doctrine of the Christ? Where does the Christ come from? Secondly, we see their quick response at the end of verse 42. Their quick response. Now in the past we've seen them stop and, and deliberate amongst themselves and then turn around to refuse to answer the question. Now they're still gathered together here. We've already read while the Pharisees were gathered together. So this would be a great time to sort of circle the wagons, get into a huddle and discuss potential answers and the outcomes of those potential answers like they had done before. Remember, well, let's see, if we, if we say this, then, then he's going to say this. And if we say that, well, then he's going to say this, or, or the people will be offended. And so, what should we say, guys? I think it's noteworthy that they take no time to deliberate. They don't even consider what might happen. They immediately respond. I, I imagine them almost in unison, with great pride and assurance. They said to him, the son of David... And they were probably proud, had their chests puffed out, and they, they got one right. Now, this is obviously a reference to King David, who was the second and most popular of all of the kings of Israel. Now, this would have been very important for Matthew's audience to hear them say this, because there was consensus among the religious leaders that the Christ would come from the progeny of King David. A fact that was established in chapter 1 of this gospel, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The answer was so sure, so well known, so unanimous among the Jews, they didn't have to think about it. Everybody knew the Messiah was the son of David. When I asked you a minute ago, what would be your answer? Would you answer it that way? The son of David. This is a very popular answer, a bedrock tenet of the Jewish understanding of the Messiah. In Matthew 9, 27, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. In chapter 12, the people were amazed and they said, Can this be the son of David? In chapter 20, again, two blind men, one of them Bartimaeus, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. During the triumphal entry, what did they say? Hosanna! to the son of David. And then the following day, the children were crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. If you were a Jew, you knew and probably reveled in the fact that the Christ would be the son of David. Now while this answer is correct, what, what are the implications of it? It, it is so, somewhat simplistic. So let's think about what, what it would mean. What did it mean for the Pharisees or for the Jews to, to believe that the Christ was the son of David? Well, it meant that he would be a Jew. David was a Jew. 
from the tribe of Judah? He would be a Jew with personal biases and partiality to the nation of Israel. For him to be the king of, or uh, the son of David would, would mean that he would be a king with strength and authority to rule and to lead them to freedom, their nation. If he were the son of David, he would be a man like them and like all of their other kings. A man who might possibly be coerced or bribed, a man who would give in to the opinions of worthless fellows that hung around him, a man who, if need be, could be forced out and another to take his place like their kings in history. In other words, he would be a man, just a man. So that's their response. The third thing we see here is a, a revealing examination of their doctrine. Let's just see. Our Lord opens up and, and shows them where their error is here. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Set at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Now notice his method here. They've already agreed, son of David. They've got a high view of David, and he's going to use what they have already agreed upon to, to show their incomplete knowledge. He's going to back them into a corner with this. He uses several things to add weight to his argument in verse 43. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord? In other words, David said, You're a great king great and honored king. Your king David said, but then he adds this, the, the Spirit's superintendence of David's words. The Holy Spirit, the, their God who is Spirit. David, your great and honored king under the influence of the Holy Spirit calls the Messiah Lord. So he's using these weighty facts to force them to the logical conclusion. And then he turns in the place to their scriptures where David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls the Messiah Lord. Psalm 110, 1. Verse 44, he quotes, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Again, David is the author, so, so picture the whole scene like you're watching it on a movie. And David sits down to write, and he's the writer. And David writes, the Lord, in the original, in the psalm, it's Yahweh. David writes, Yahweh said to my Lord. David writes, in other words, God said to my Lord. Now we would stop and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. now we've got two lords. So, so what's, what's happening here? And that's, that's the point. This psalm was historically understood to be a messianic psalm. The Pharisees would have known that this psalm was about the Messiah, who they believe rightly to be David's son. But the psalm clearly shows David calling the Messiah Lord, Master, Ruler, Commander, Sovereign. And so then he restates the question. All of that shown from the text... If then David calls him Lord, which he does, how can he be his son? Or how is he his son? 
In what manner, in what way is he his son? And so you see the point is, is this. Yes, the Christ is David's son. No bone to pick about that. We're, ever, we're all clear there. But how can he be David's son coming after David, still expected in their day, they were still waiting, many Jews today still waiting. How can he be David's son coming after David in the manner of ancestry less than David, one to whom David would owe respect and honor, or who would owe David respect and honor, and yet David honors him. David calls him Lord. It would be like, it would be like my father calling me Lord, or case, Lord. How can the Christ be David's son and David's Lord? How can he come after David as to his physical lineage and yet David's writing about him as his Lord in his own day? What do you think about the Christ? I wonder, can you, answer, can you solve the dilemma? See, our Lord just pointed out an error in their Christology. They were so preoccupied with his being David's son, a truth that could tend to lean, lean, lend prejudice to the nation of Israel, that they had not considered him as David's Lord, the one who stands over all of the kingdoms of men. Fourthly then, notice their deafening reaction to this question. Their deafening reaction. No one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him a question. In other words, it was silence. And as we often say, sometimes silence is deafening. There is no answer. Why can they not answer the question? They don't have an answer. The Jewish concept of Messiah did not include anything further than a merely human king, perhaps with supernatural power, anointed by God, who would come and liberate their nation. And so they couldn't answer it. They had no, no concept of this. And then they don't ask him any more questions. Why is that? Because they realize this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is far superior to them in wisdom and understanding. And so while they are silent, their silence is proclaiming their ignorance. They have not understood the Scriptures. And so we see in this passage by way of doctrine the necessity of a correct Christology. The necessity of a correct Christology. It all boils down to this. This is the most important question. What do you think about the Christ? Who is He? Where did He come from? Whose Son is He? And again, wrong answers to these questions are the building blocks of false religion. The Pharisees and the majority of the Jews of Jesus' day had a wrong Christology. And that's why the exalted Lord calls them a synagogue of Satan later in John's revelation. They were not just confused Jews. They were not God's people still. They were a synagogue of Satan because they had a wrong Christology. The doctrine of Christ is not secondary. It's primary. Jesus Christ is not a tenet of Christianity. He is Christianity. Consider these things. John the Baptist made certain that the Levites knew he was not the Christ. 
And while he was in prison, he heard about the deeds of the Christ and he sent messengers to Christ to make sure he was the Christ. When Peter had confessed Jesus as the Christ, he followed it with the Son of the living God. When Peter preached at Pentecost later, his sermon, well, one of the applications was, hey guys, David is dead, but Jesus is alive and at the right hand of God. When Paul preached in Athens, he says, guys, someday God's going to judge the whole world in righteousness by a man, Christ Jesus. We know that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Christ is the testimony given at the proper time. While we were weak sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. We've been baptized into Christ. There's none to condemn us now, for Christ has died and Christ was raised. Paul says, I've determined to know nothing except Christ and Him crucified. We love these truths. But all of these truths are absolutely meaningless if you've got the wrong Christ. It's not just a word. It's like winning the keys to a brand new car and you don't know where the car is. It's, just, it's nothing. It's just something to jingle in your pocket. This is not a secondary or tertiary matter. This is the matter. The matter of the ages. What do you think about the Christ? John wrote in 1 John 4, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. In other words, John said, true and false religion hinges on a person's doctrine of the Christ. Eternity hinges on your Christology. So first, by way of application, we must have the right Christ. We must have the right Christ. To say Christ, I've said these things many times before, to say Christ is to assert doctrine. Many people will say, we have no creed but Christ. And what do we know? That is a creed. That is a confession of faith. A statement of belief. And it is actually confessing a doctrine of Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. He wasn't born to Mary and Joseph Christ. It's His position, His title. The Anointed One. Like the Old Testament prophets and priests and kings who were anointed of God, they were all mediators between God and, and fallen men. The prophets would bring the Word of God to man. The priests would take the people and represent them before God in the tabernacle and teach them the Word of God. The kings would exercise God's authority over the people. All of this mediating this relationship. The anointed ones. All of that is assuming a few things. That we have to have these mediators between God and man assumes God is holy, man is Wicked, And so at some point we've got to get to the point where we have a supreme and eternal, sufficient mediator between God and man. If there must be a mediator then, we know that a man will not suffice because we can't get to God. We know that God can't come to us as He is or we would immediately be annihilated by His holiness. 
So this mediator must be both God and man. Man to share in our infirmities and relate to God on our behalf. And God to stand above our infirmities and relate to us on behalf of God. That Christ, only that Christ, and all of that Christ is the true Christ. We have to have the right Christ. We must, we must understand how all of this flows out of his title as the Christ. And then we must have that in our thinking. This is how we must think about the Christ. He asked them, what do you think about the Christ? We must have correct Christology in our thinking, in our perception, in our hearts and in our minds when we consider the Lord. To have the wrong Christ is to be opposed to the true Christ, regardless of what the confession says, regardless of the website, regardless of your creed. Up here and in here is what matters. We must be sure that our mind's eye is beholding the right Christ. That leads to the second application. Christ's person is unlike any other. And therefore it requires specific conception. A specific conception in the mind. It's not just think about the words or, or just think what you like. Because this person is unlike any other. If I said, well think of... A red crayon, well, that's, that's pretty simple. I can think of a red crayon. Christ is, is unlike any other. When we say Christ, we are asserting the dual nature of the man, Jesus of Nazareth. We, we are saying we believe Jesus of Nazareth is fully God and fully man. Now, I just want to read to you some of these quotes from the early creeds and even from our confession. And I just want you to hear, and it'll be up on the screen as well, I want you to consider the depth of thought in their doctrines. And as I read these and you consider these, ask yourself, is that who I think about when I read Matthew 22? Is that who I am thinking about when I read John 13 and I see the Lord washing the feet of His disciples? Is that what I think of when I read Luke 24 and I imagine Him walking on the road to Emmaus? Is that what I think about when I read Luke chapter 2? Because if it's not, you've got the wrong Christ. Listen to the Nicene Creed. It says, The Lord Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, Begotten of the Father before all worlds. God of God. Light of light. Very God of very God. Begotten, not made. Being of one substance with the Father. By whom all things were made. Is that who you picture when you read John 13? That was early. Consider the Athanasian Creed. The right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. God of the substance of the Father, begotten before the worlds, 
and man, of substance of his mother, born in the world, perfect God and perfect man, of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting, equal to the Father as touching his Godhead, and inferior to the Father as touching his manhood, who although he is God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ. One, not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by taking of that manhood into God. One, altogether, not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person. We should be offended when people say, I have no creed but Christ. When we realize that men have spilt blood to hammer out the true identity of our Lord. And in all of this lies His glory. The Chalcedonian Creed. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence. Not parted or divided into parts, but one and the same Son, the only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Every one of these stood to clarify through the centuries the doctrine of the Christ. Because even from the earliest days, this is what was under attack. Who is the Christ? What do you think about the Christ? I'll read this from our confession. The Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with Him, who made the world, who upholds and governs all things He has made, did, when the fullness of time was complete, take upon Him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities of it, yet without sin." being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. That's the Christ. Forgive me for being scholastic and just reading. I can't say it any other way. These are not matters of speculation or observation. This is who He is. This is His glory. He is God and He is man. And even in His glorified and exalted state, 
now interceding at the right hand of God. The Lord Jesus is still and will forever exist as the God-man. Now many struggle with this, and, and, and we, this is the struggle. How are we to consider, how are we to think about the Christ who is fully God and fully man, exalted and glorified in the heavens when we know He, he did once walk this earth as a man, just like we are, and yet is at the same time the incomprehensible God that we talked about last Lord's Day. How do we think? I don't want to think wrongly, I want to think rightly. How can I think about Him? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.16, Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. The meaning is, says Calvin, though Christ lived for a time in this world and was known by mankind in those things to have to do with the condition of the present life, He must now be known in another way, spiritually, so that we may have no worldly thoughts respecting Him. In other words, we, we don't think about Him according to the flesh. We consider Him spiritually. We are to think about the dual nature of the Christ spiritually. So we must have the right Christ. Christ's person requires that special conception of Him, that spiritual conception. And here's the third point of application. Only by faith. Having been informed by the Scriptures, can we rightly think about and behold the Christ? That is the only way. Remember, this we saw last week, this God is incomprehensible. We can't wrap our minds around God. The finite minds of men cannot begin to grasp limitless, infinite, immense, eternal God. We cannot. And Christ is that God, and no less than that God. And so as to His true person and His true glory, He's fully and completely God, God which cannot be comprehended. And we can't think rightly about the Christ without considering both natures all at once. And so therefore we cannot comprehend the glory of Christ. It's only with the eyes of faith that we can begin to behold such glory. We cannot even then fully behold it in this life. Now by God's grace, we are given in, in the Christian life, in our, in our communion with God, we are given deeper faith sights of the glory of Christ, but we'll never comprehend it. We can't in this life. It is by faith. The Scriptures... The revelation of God concerning Himself and His Christ are given to us as the means by which our faith is conformed or informed as to the right conception of Christ. In other words, the Scriptures inform, instruct, educate the heart and the mind and then by faith we behold Christ, not by sight. We behold Him by faith fully God, fully man, the only mediator between God and man who took upon himself the flesh and blood of men that he might obey and suffer as a man for the sins of men, only by faith and not by sight. You can see 
the historical understanding of, of the iconoclasts that would repudiate pictures and images of Christ. You can see it's built on doctrine. A picture cannot show you the glory of Christ. It can't even begin. All it can do is tell you a lie about Him. Only by faith, having been informed by the Scriptures, can we begin to behold the glory of Christ. So as we come to the Lord's table, we need to answer the question, if David then calls Him Lord, how is He His Son? The answer is, He is God and He is man. In Revelation 22 and verse 16, he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Let all the house of Israel know, this is from the book of Acts, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so at the Lord's table we remember and we proclaim and we fellowship with the crucified and risen God-man by means of His grace. We remember His flesh and blood that was broken and poured out for us, not some sort of uh, phantom mystical body, literal physical, flesh and blood, just like ours, beaten and spit upon and, and punched and kicked and whipped and nailed to a cross, blood just like the blood that flows through our veins, poured out for us. That's what we're doing at the Lord's Supper. We're remembering that. Yes, He is man and He is God. Yes, He is God and He is man. This is how we must, we must conceive of Him by faith. So take a moment and think on this glorious Christ, infinite God and man, hanging on the cross of Golgotha, beaten and mocked to bring us to God.